0: Welcome to this thread of the podcast. My name is Susie Kahn, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website Kylac.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go, to go a little further and deeper, or to find other information, or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something, even a donation. Thanks for listening. One of the consequences of the system design that we currently live with is being played out in people's feelings of insecurity in terms of being able, being practically and hands-on able to supply our own basic survival needs of food and shelter in particular. And so I decided to include a thread in the podcast on the practical and hands-on, because this is something that I have been developing throughout my life from a very early age, being surrounded by very practical hands-on people. Although they were not all primary producers in a village or community system. Some of them were. Some of them were farmers and producers. Others were DIYers, self-sufficiency practitioners. And so I I grew up in an environment where the idea that you could do things for yourself was very prevalent. What I want to talk about in this thread is is some of the skills I've learned, some of the starting points if you want to learn skills yourself, and maybe a little bit about the motivation as to why you might try. I suppose touching on that first, before I get into a couple of overviews of skills, I think that although there there could be an actual reason why you need for your economic survival to produce your own food and know how to create your own shelter, the other aspects are that knowing how to do that, whether or not you you absolutely need to. Like if you live with a privilege of having an income and being able to buy food that other people produce, then you, you could legitimately say, I don't need to know how to produce my own food, do I? Or similarly, if you have the privilege of living in a home whether you own it or whether you rent it, but that you've got shelter and you feel like it's very adequate shelter, then again, you don't need to know how to build your own house. But what I've found in working and learning my own practical skills and teaching and facilitating other people to start a practical skills journey, whether that's growing food, processing food, making food as medicine, natural medicines and herbs, or whether it's building a small stone wall or a large foundation wall for a cob house, or working with lime hemp or other building materials, that what I find is that even knowing how to do the basics really makes people feel more secure. It's somehow fundamental to us that we should know how to provide for those needs. It's part of who we are as an animal species. It's a really, really core thing. It's interesting in the year that I'm making this podcast that people have returned to that in a time of insecurity in huge numbers. The amount of people that have stepped off and started to learn to grow their own food or make things Or produce something in countries where they don't have to do that. If they're willing to go out in a capitalist system and give their labor to someone else and get paid in wages, then they can purchase those primary production elements. The freeingness of being able to do some of this yourself and the insecurity override that knowing some of it yourself is is about the motivation. But let's get into some of the practical skills you might want to learn yourself and how you might begin. A really simple thing is that you do actually need to just begin because practical skills, unlike other kinds of competencies that you might have, although you could certainly argue this for almost any competency and skill, is that it needs practice. That word practical and practice that come together, they are directly related to actually trying something out. And it's really because the feedback that you get from doing it is what builds your skill level. So at the moment, I'm adding a new skill, uh, which is I'm making spoons. And I'd wanted to learn how to do that. And there's lots of people in my world that make spoons, Um at one of the all-Ireland permaculture gatherings that I'm involved with, a crew of people that have been putting those together since 2011, that we would work with a concept of open space um, workshops, meaning people can just say on the day one what workshops they're going to be offering, what talks and and, and so on is going to happen. And at one of them, we had something like 16 Spoon Makers who were willing to share their skills, so they all ended up in one tent with a large amount of people wanting to learn how to make a spoon. And it's such a simple implement, and it's actually a relatively simple skill to start with if you've had a little bit of experience with uh, working with knives. If you haven't, then I would probably try something else first because there is a curved blade usually involved, um, although you can hollow out, the inside of a spoon by using an ember and kind of burning in a hollow and then sanding it out with actual sand or sandpaper. So you can do this at a at a real basic level of um, creating a tool. But if you want to go a little bit further, then there are some lovely curved blades and knives that you can use. And those are the ones I've been working with. The example is that when you begin it, it's not going to be the perfect product overnight. And so what my first spoons i noticed they were very chunky they were very thick i wasn't confident about how much material i could carve off the sticks or pieces of greenwood that i'm working with and so i kind of left the finished spoons as as quite a chunky piece now as i'm progressing and i'm only on this is a new skill for me i'm only on about my fifth or sixth spoon now i'm i'm finding that they're lighter and they're better formed in shape. And so that's just one development of a skill. Talking about gardening, which is one of the ones growing something that you can eat, is one of the ones I've been really intimately involved with um, literally all my life and in the facilitation of other people in school and community gardens and permaculture courses and so on. And so just to think about the starting off point, if you're considering starting that or improving that, Luckily, there are some fantastic resources out there. One of the things that I notice with the resources is that there's a mulling period when you're beginning to think about learning a new skill. So there are people who have a self-sufficiency book or they have are listening to a podcast or they are watching YouTube videos or reading gardening books for sometimes a mulling period can go on for quite some time and you can acquire a lot of the knowledge and about the practice. But once you go to actually start the practice, you start to really, really deepen your learning. And so I will, I will notice sometimes when facilitating somebody growing that they've read an instruction. So a written instruction about how to plant peas, for example. And it might say, well, plant a double row, half an inch apart and give support. But until you start doing that in the ground and you start going, wait a minute, what do they mean a double row? And do I really know what half an inch apart looks like? And so when I usually, that example I give because whenever I watch somebody the first time they're kind of trying to uh, plant the bees, what usually happens is they plant them very far apart, not half an inch apart. And the double row, they they just plant one single row of peas. Um, and then they often make a support of some kind, whether it is, you know, some sticks and string or maybe some sheep wire, that often they don't realize all these other things about the growing of peas. So one of them is that they'll grow really tall depending on the variety. But often there's many varieties go beyond waist height. They might go beyond person, adult person height, if you're tall. And so when they, when you get, if you have planted them in a double row and close together right underneath the support, they'll grow up and they'll create such a thick mass of peas, which is wonderful for harvest. They'll also create sale effect. And so they'll be weighty and they'll catch the wind and the support and all of the peas might collapse. If you plant your peas out in the garden and and you don't see anything coming up, you might think, I wonder what's going on with the peas. And so keeping some kind of a record of what you're doing as you try out a practical skill can be really good. Now, the record keeping I'm doing in my spoons are the previous spoons. I'm just looking at them. But record keeping in the garden... I remember when I grew my first peas in a garden many years ago, I found this notebook and and it was very nice to read those early stages of developing the skill because it basically said, I planted the peas, something's eating them. I think it's mice. Maybe I did them quite early in the spring when little mice are coming out or maybe I did them at some other time of year. And I also would make notes about how things thrived or didn't thrive depending on weather conditions, in those early notebooks. Like, I planted courgettes out in early April one year, and my notebook said, I think I planted them out too early, frost got them. So though I might have read that in a gardening book or a blog or a video blog, it's really when you do it that you realise, oh yeah, I think that they did say, something like tender plants. Don't plant those out, harden them off or plant them out later. And in Ireland, the last frost is like the end of May, beginning of June for something that's tender to frost. As you start doing it, you keep a note. And the wonderful thing about all of these skills is they can all be developed and improved. So your gardening log can help you just one season later you come around a year and you're doing it again you go oh wait now funny enough we learn from obviously the record keeping if you keep records but I think the thing that's really really important about all the practical skills learning and it's something that I hope you take encouragement from if you're trying out something new and practical is that you learn the absolute most from your mistakes because although you will, maybe if you grew loads of peas and they grew really tall and they grew really well and you um, filled the bucket with them, there's a lovely Irish seed savers heritage pea called fill the bucket and you ate them and it was all very successful. That will, that reward may reward you and you may wish to grow them again. But remembering exactly how that you did that and what the conditions were is probably more likely of the things that don't go well because we do tend to, overthink our mistakes, or they go in deeper. So you plant the peas and no peas come, or a few come and then something eats them, or they blow over at, at a critical point and break, and then you go, wow, I was so excited and hoping to get the result of this practice, um, and now I didn't. And I think because the kind of learning that most people are used to in exam-based accredited types of schooling that what you get is a, a, a sort of disincentive to make mistakes. You get a big red line or X, or you get a grade that's low and implication is don't make mistakes. But if you're learning something practical, I think it's really, really important that you know that making mistakes isn't a reason to give up. It's a new learning opportunity. And in fact. That's how I tend to try to talk about it and teach it and think of it myself is, if I make a mistake, I go, wow, that's a great learning opportunity. I'm definitely going to remember that. If I was thinking of my dicing with knives and spoon making at the moment, then you can be sure that if I cut in the wrong angle or the wrong direction and I make a slice shallower deep, depending on what would be needed, I would remember that mistake much better and say, yeah, hold the knife differently to this. So that's why I do say some mistakes you're best building up to. So if you haven't done work with knives, then maybe spoon making isn't for you right away. But I think it's a thing for teaching or facilitating practical skill learning at all ages is to get over that fear of mistakes and to take what are acceptable risks. And I think that maybe that's one of the reasons there's great pleasure in gardening if you don't need to succeed the first year you do it for feeding your family. It's a very different pressure if you are someone who doesn't have the privilege of access to food in any other way than you growing it for your family. And that's a whole different thing. But if you're starting out, then there that pressure is off and the pleasure of learning from mistakes can grow on you as, as you grow. Um, so a couple of other examples outside of gardening because as I say, there's a lot of people trying gardening in the last year. And the things that I would come back to in maybe further threads are other ingredients as you think and maybe plan in this hemisphere. Anyway, in Ireland, we're going into um, deep winter. And so the planning time for gardens is 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 something that comes then as you head in and you think, what will I grow this year and what seeds might I try and what time of year? do they get planted and how do I transplant them and how will I beat the slugs and all these kind of practical considerations. So it is something I'll return to. But the other practical skill that I wanted to talk about is the idea of shelter making. Because just as being able to produce and have the pleasure of producing some of your own food, making fun preserves, creating recipes and all that, shelter making is actually, in parallel, a very similar process. And again, the exposure to that experimentation, especially in childhood at an age where you don't care as much about this sort of mistake, and it's not a critical thing if you're not actually trying to build a house you can live in, is that it's a similar building block lit there, to forgive the pun, but it's a similar process of starting with basic skills and understanding and working your way up One of the things that kids do all over the place is they make some form of shelter. Games that allow them to do that and give them different materials to play with are getting basic understandings at a very uh, practical, hands-on, tried level of what materials go together, how they might attach to each other, what sort of balances they have, how they might fall over, Or how they might not, whether that's in game form with different materials and different ways of of creating structures, small and large. If you're coming to it as an adult and you want to start to learn these kinds of building skills, then it's great to start with something simple. I am going to very clearly declare that the bias I have in all the practical skills that I'm talking about are part of the same weaving into the web of all the threads of these related podcasts. They are things that are on the side of life. The kinds of skills in building that I was attracted to learning are all things that have a sacredness about the materials, that have a respect or a compassion for life inherent in what is chosen. And of course, in modernity, I've found that challenging. I have find the things that I can learn and the skills that I can develop about low-impact living. They tend to be easier on walls, for example, of a structure, maybe interior walls and floors. They get quite challenging when I'm looking at insulation levels under the floor, Um, not so much in the walls. Insulation in walls and ceilings are easy enough to uh, come by. Um, in terms of respectful use of materials. But when you get into roofs and if you decide you're going to have electricity to wiring and plastics, it, it becomes more challenging. Whatever goal you set yourself, I think it's worth being very forgiving, not only of your mistakes along the way, but also of what you can manage, um, to live with as again, hopefully this is all part of us returning to our relationships and our right relationships with all the life and all the beings around us. One of the things that you get into when you're touching the materials for building is that the sense of life or the sense of our relations that I love that Native American Indigenous peoples would talk about the rock relations, you know, which is interesting for people who think of life as only something that is animate. But these beings, the different rocks that you are looking at, the different properties of of the materials like holding and feeling clay, which is just ground up rock, and sands and silts. And you get really interested in figuring out these properties. And how do you do that is by trying them out. I'm going to give the example, like I gave the example of something simple like growing peas. The simplest example of starting out with building something is either something that you can cut and chop and attach to each other like wood, or it is something like stones or clay or other materials like that. What I thought I'll talk about in a bit more detail is what it's like to work with clay as a building materials. Clay is a pretty cool material that we've had a relationship with since early tool making. And that's because at that microscopic level, it is a structure of like plates. And that's the term they use, these kind of skinny plates at the sort of, if you'd call it the cellular level of the clay, at the kind of microscopic level. And if you imagine them, uh, I find it's quite helpful to think of clay as a bit like fish scales. So if you have ever caught a fish, that's another practical skill. Um, or, and then you have had the a fresh fish in your hands, the scales come off and they are incredibly sticky because they're skinny and flat and they stick to you and they stick to each other because of the attraction almost at the level of this like skinny thing. And that's what it's like in the plates of clay. There's, positive and negative attraction to that sort of atomic level. So clay is something that's really sticky. And so because the particles all stick together so tightly, it has some interesting properties for making something practical. And so the first thing that humans made out of clay are pots. So something that allowed us to carry one of our basic needs about with us from somewhere to somewhere else and that was water and how to make pots came after we had been working with fire for some time. So if you've ever come across a clay deposit or if you've ever worked with clay because you were given it in a craft class, you know that it's very nice to hold and squish and make things out of. There are some people, depending on your sensory perceptions and the amount of information that comes at you through your senses of touch. Some people don't like the the feel of it. So when I say it's a very nice feel, that's a bias. But I have seen that many people like it. I have occasionally come across people who don't like the feel of clay. It's, It's sort of the wet, clammy coldness of it evokes something unpleasant for them. But you can imagine somebody sitting, you know, with a lump of clay gathered from a hole beside them, as they sat cooking at a fireside and then maybe shaping something and throwing it down and in the morning realizing that it was harder. And so that sort of process of experimentation and interaction of ingredients and material with an element like fire was one of the ways that we first discovered or co-created along with the messages from fire and clay that we were picking up on. we co-created ceramics. Taking that same property and thinking about it in terms of um, developing a practical skill you could just start with a lump of pottery grade clay which you can dig up out of certain soils if I'm in uh, a county that the next county south of me is full of potteries because everywhere you dig you come up with a pottery grade clay in the subsoil. That's something just to point out that clay exists below the layer of living soil. So it is part of living soil in particle form where where you have uh, lots of the dead matter and decomposing and composting matter that breaks down through a clay-based soil. But what I'm talking about is something that's not got all of that um, organic decomposing matter in it but something that you'd use for a pot is something you'd go a bit deeper, you'd scrape off some of that living soil and underneath that then you'd have a hole where you could get pottery grade clay even if you don't live somewhere where there is pottery grade clay, there's often some percentage of clay in the soil that is underneath the living um, humus layer of soil so imagine you've got some pretty good quality clay, not very many other uh, particle sizes, not very sandy, but actually very pure clay. And you can imagine then just playing with that. And what what you find very quickly as you play with it is it, it dries out quite quickly. It'll even take moisture from your hands. It'll dry your hands out as you work with it. So often when you want to shape it, you're working with some water. So if you've ever watched anybody on a potter's wheel, they're constantly adding water because they want to keep it really malleable while they form the shape that they're working on. I love potter's wheels. I've, I'm not a potter by trade, but it is a skill that I've developed up to a certain level of proficiency. It's just really amazing to watch the clay form into almost any shape in the round that you can imagine. And that stickiness allows you to like add handles afterwards through moisture. But you can also just play with it as a sculptural form, a solid block and shape it. Once you get familiar with what clay can do, if you do let clay harden solid or maybe skinny, um, you'll notice that it also has a property of cracking when it's dry. And so depending on what its eventual use is, the processes that potters developed in firing uh, and making use of this fire element are processes that are about stopping the cracks happening through things like a slow fire at a fairly high heat. But it's called a biscuit firing that just dries out the clay, hold its shape well, and not crack. And then there'd be another firing in modern pottery anyway, where glazes get added, uh, and that keeps them even more intact and it also stops any porousness that might be left. So all those properties allow you to kind of explore what it might be used for practically at that level of making um, useful things for holding and containing water or liquids. And that same property is something that can be used then if you want to create A structural element out of clay. Usually you don't have a great big kiln that you would fire a whole house in. So when working with clay as something that you use for a building material, there is mixtures. It's like having a recipe. Recipes are great things. They're kind of flexible. You can have many recipes for your grandmother's bread. You can have many, many recipes for compost and you can have many recipes for building with clay. Depending on the local conditions and the and the knowledge that you're gaining from somebody else because that's what another thing to mention about practical skills is that they are very often best handed down from one mentor to another, and that people try different things out. I've spent a lot of time around natural builders in Ireland because i I host them on our permaculture demonstration site and they they've helped us build a cop barn or done different things and there's really variation just like there is in grandmother's brown bread recipe. The basic ingredients are similar or almost the same, but the different ways people have of using them, that's reflected in the diversity of individuals, the diversity of the materials, the design, the ideas. And the other thing that goes into building diversity really is climate and conditions and function. So, there's all this amazing range of the kinds of shelters that humans have made themselves across the planet from early man making things out of mammoth tusks and using sods from the ground to build insulated, you know, winter shelters to other much lighter and airier bamboo and rushes structures that can be rebuilt after a storm and just provide some shade from the sun. So local conditions dictate different things. One of the first projects after playing with clay for making pinch pots and coil pots um, that I like to work with is making a cob oven to bake bread and pizzas and even uh, other dishes that benefit from a slow wood-fired cooking process in that instance it's a it's really good because I think when I started making cob ovens I'm I probably made in in a couple of years about six or seven of them in different locations either at our own demonstration sites or with other people wanting to try them out and I didn't have successes in everything that happened but wonderfully these materials are a good practical skill to try out because they're safe and and they're very forgiving. And if your cob oven collapses as one of our really, I think, overly large cob ovens, one of the early ones that I built, um, we thought we'd want something really big for making lots of pizza. And what I realized is small and compact and quick is actually better than trying to have an enormous oven. Um, and we cooked. One night for volunteers and community members and people that were uh, family, we cooked something like 20 pizzas or for 20 people. And then just at the very end of the night, the, there were a few ingredients left over and, and some of the volunteers thought they'd just make one last enormous pizza. And as they got it almost cooked, a big section of the cob oven's roof collapsed on it. Um And they still picked out the clay because it's perfectly... uh safe to eat clay if it's not contaminated with heavy metals or come from a contaminated site. So they just picked out most of the clay and still ate the pizza. So these great lessons that come from trying something out. The ingredients then that go into the mix that you experiment with are a clay, which is the subsoil I talk about from whatever site you're on. Something that will uh, dilute the clay so that it doesn't crack so much in something with larger particles than the clay. So the clay remains the sticky ingredient, a bit like butter in a cake. And sand is added, or sandy subsoil, if that's what you're on. You might be adding clay to sandy subsoil, but the mix of the two you're trying to get is like you're adding sugar to the butter in a cake recipe. So that gritty sticky texture. And so in doing that, you end up with this sticky, gritty kind of thing. And then the one last ingredient that you want is something that helps what's called tensile strength, meaning something that is kind of crisscrossing in lines inside the mixture. The other ingredient that you can add is some form of fiber. And I know from clay building that people used, again, a huge diversity of materials in the clay fibers. My aunt lives in a 12th or 13th century thatched cottage um, in the UK and part of a windowsill needed repaired at some point and it was very, very thick clay wall. And when they were digging into it and, and making up new clay, cob as it's called when you have all those mixes together, they they kind of pulled apart some of the materials and they identified heather off of the heath nearby and horsehair. But one of the ones that's very commonly used is straw. So it's anything that is like an organic fibre that you can have in long fibres and short fibres that crisscross through the mixture. And that gives this extra strength when building in the cup. So that's all you need. How much clay, how much sand, how much fibre... Although there, you can read lots of great books now. You didn't used to be able to read about clay building, cob building, but there are now a lot of books and there are a lot of videos and you can find proportions and you can do measurements and it's about 20% clay in the mix roughly. But what is really great about just playing with making, you know, a small cob oven or, you know, any other like tiny structure, is that you'll you'll learn by how it performs. And so it goes back to the mistakes and trying something out practically. You can make shapes with this in terms of a clay oven. The shape that you're trying to make is a dome. And the way to do that is on whatever plinth or structure you're going to build it on top of, that you start off with, there's lots of layers you can add for insulation. Under your clay, you can add a layer of old bottles and cans and you can use clay to kind of create a... take just your fibre and make your clay very wet and liquidy and kind of squish it till you have like what's called a clay slip. looks like a thick hot chocolate and you can mix in fibres and kind of tuck them into a base with maybe a ring of clay to hold them and then more cob clay mix on top and that's kind of a base on top of your plinth and then on top of that you can make the dome shape and the dome shape you make like a giant round sandcastle out of sand so you have enough sand to kind of sit there and make a dome because when you build the shape using the clay over that and you leave a doorway when it's all dried sufficiently you can dig out the sand and that becomes the hole or the shape inside or the void of the clay oven. Starting off one of those in just like miniature is a good way to just experiment with this and get a feel for the materials and how they dry out. You can also cast a few cob bricks, which you can use to build up, so you just need to create a shape of some form. This will bring you into some woodwork where you have... A couple of uh, pieces of small planks of wood that you create a a, a a box with a center bit that's empty doesn't need to have a lid or a bottom, and then you just pack in some of that cob mixture into them, and then lift off the wood piece afterwards, and then leave it to dry, and you get or dry a little bit, and you get a cob brick that you can use for maybe helping you form the shape around the doorway in a cob oven. I hope. That you've begun to get the sense that there are really fun things to get out and try practically, if you haven't already. And that if you can learn from another person that's nearby that knows something, just to give you enough tips and guidance to get going, that's brilliant. And if you can do the same, of course, through other resources, books and videos and so on, But the encouragement that I'm giving is don't wait too long to try and have your first mistakes or, as I'm suggesting you call them, amazing learning opportunities.